0: Hi there, Danae here. I have a Q&A episode for you today. Many of you submitted questions, and I'll be answering some of those, including questions on extracurricular activities, handling challenging behavior at dinner time, volunteering at your kids' schools, updates on my wardrobe, and a variety of others. Hi, this is Danae. I'm the founder of Simple Families. Simple Families is an online community for parents who are seeking a simpler, more intentional life. In this show, we focus on minimalism with kids, positive parenting, family wellness, and decreasing the mental load. My perspectives are based in my firsthand experience raising kids, but also rooted in my PhD in child development. So you're going to hear conversations that are based in research, but more importantly, real life. Thanks for joining us. Hi there, and thanks so much for tuning in. Today, I have a Q&A episode for you. These are some of my favorite episodes. I love reading your questions and responding to them the best way that I possibly can, which is generally with some combination of my personal experience, my on-the-job training as a mom, and also my educational background and my work experience. Now, that being said, many of the things that I say are not going to resonate with you. I hope that many of them do. But as I always say on this podcast, take what works for you and leave what doesn't. And I truly mean that. I hope that when you hear something that doesn't really suit you, doesn't suit your family, doesn't suit your parenting style, that you're able to see that and recognize it and say, okay, it's fine that today does that and I don't. Or it's fine that she believes that and I don't. I think that hearing opinions that differ from your own are a healthy way to practice our critical thinking skills and to further define and understand our own belief system. So with that being said, I'm gonna jump into a variety of different questions. Here's the first question. Hi, I recently signed up my eight-year-old for karate at her request after she tried a few other activities that she wasn't fully enjoying. We found a highly recommended dojo and she seems to like it, but we just had an incident where she hit her friend hard during an argument. She's always been very verbal in arguments, so this really caught me off guard. I'm curious about your thoughts on martial arts and developmental readiness of kids being able to use these skills versus ability to use it in an appropriate situation. Thank you. This is a great question. I am a huge supporter for martial arts. I think especially when kids are young, unless they have this really, really strong drive to play one particular sport or do one particular thing, that a couple of the activities that I recommend the most are martial arts and gymnastics because they do provide such a good fundamental basis for body awareness and opportunities to move the body in so many different ways. Most martial arts programs also have a mindfulness component where they're talking and learning about how to use these skills in really positive ways. So maybe it's worth a check-in with the dojo, asking this question to them to see if they can support you. I am inclined to say I wouldn't jump to conclusions that the learning of martial arts and this hitting are related. In general, hitting happens when we don't have the words to express ourselves. It happens when we get completely overwhelmed and aren't able to access our thinking brains, which help us to make good decisions to problem solve. And all those skills do rapidly develop throughout childhood. So yes, I think it's safer to say that the older the child is, the less likely they're going to be using their bodies and more likely they're going to be using their words when they're problem solving and dealing with conflicts. However, I think the ability to use our bodies in aggressive ways to solve problems, that's something that isn't generally taught. That's something innate within us. It's kind of this caveman-like tendency That comes out when we don't have other skills, when we don't use our more evolved skills. So that being said, I don't think that the hitting is a learned behavior as a result of martial arts. It could be a sign that she's overwhelmed and she's struggling to manage her body and her emotions. And in many ways, martial arts could help with that. So keep an eye on it. See if this is just an isolated incident. I would talk to the dojo to make sure that there's conversation going around around the appropriate use of these new skills. But again, I wouldn't jump to conclusions on these two things necessarily being related. Next question. Like many in the past two years, we recently moved from the city to the suburbs. One of the best things about this move was the schools. The schools are more community focused. They encourage and incorporate parents' involvement in the school. Like most parents, new and born and bred, we are embracing these in-person volunteer opportunities. But it's also feeling competitive and overwhelming. How do we get involved while keeping it simple? You can be a library volunteer, a lunch duty volunteer, a classroom parent that plans Halloween and Valentine's Day parties, May Day chair prep. I feel like it's easy to get carried away. This is a great question. I think it's gonna differ region to region, school to school but it's always wonderful when parents can go in and volunteer i'm a part of the parent association for one of my children's schools this year and there are some people that are super involved i work full-time so i'm moderately to minimally involved i guess you could say a lot of these opportunities take place during the day based on your question i think i would take a look at your why For me, I have been volunteering for more things because I want to be more connected to a community. And that doesn't necessarily mean it has to be within my children's school communities, being at their school. Instead, it might mean coordinating activities for parents to get together and and know each other better outside of school. Because that's something that's been really missing in the past years. I'd also ask yourself if you kind of have ulterior motives in doing all these things at your kid's school. Could you maybe be trying to get them preferential treatment or maybe have a little bit of sway when it comes to the administration? I think that those things do happen with parent involvement in schools. So assuming that your motives are genuine and positive, I would probably lean in to do what you enjoy the most and give other people the other opportunities. And don't necessarily look to get your fill of socialization and community within this atmosphere. Maybe start a hiking group in your community, a walking group. If you're really craving it, making an effort to get people together aside from just these school type events. All right, next question. My five-year-old son was recently introduced to Pokemon and I'm not sure what to think of it. What's the point? How do you control the constant request for more cards? It seems like you have embraced your son's interest and made it work within your family. Can you give a brief overview of what Pokemon is all about and the reasons to support our kids' interest in Pokemon? I have to believe there are some good things about it and tips for engaging your child's Pokemon interest while also setting limits and boundaries. I am certainly no Pokemon expert. I did watch a couple of intro videos when my kids first started getting into it because I had absolutely no idea what any of these things meant. In general, I think that Pokemon is pretty fun and innocent less violent than a lot of the other shows. They do battle, but nobody dies. There's no blood. Fairly slow moving, simplistic in animation. My kids have actually done a lot of reading with Pokemon, especially with the guidebooks. There's lots of opportunities to put the executive functioning skills to work with all the planning and the organizing. I think initially when we started, my daughter was really young and she made a Giant disaster of all of her cards. They were always all over our house. And I realized that I had just given her more than she can handle. So we scaled way back. Uh, she started with 10 cards. Well, originally she started with like 100 cards and then they were everywhere. So I put about 90 of them up and gave her 10. And she was only about four at this time. And then as she got older, I gave her a few more and a few more. And then I helped her organize them within a binder. And now she has, I don't know, maybe like 200. I have absolutely no idea. But as she's gotten older, she's six now, she is able to better take care of them. She's had a lot of practice with it and she's had time to grow into this. So I would say start small and see what they can handle. My son, on the other hand, is a super organized kid. I don't know where he gets it. He's certainly not for me. From day one, he had all of his cards separated by trainer, by type. I never find a single one of his Pokemon cards on the floor naturally, it just comes a lot easier for him. So as a result, he can handle more. He's a little older. He takes good care of them. So he does have more than her. He has two binders. Basically, he takes them over to his friend's houses. They'll flip through them. Sometimes they'll trade some, but it's kind of a conversation starter or something that they talk about. They compare notes on just a shared common interest. So yeah, I think Pokemon is great, and in general, any time that we can support our kids' interests, we should. Unless we have a very good reason not to. In supporting their interests, can we help them set boundaries and limits? Yes, for sure. My daughter has recently expressed interest in horseback riding, and my husband is not supportive of this. I think primarily because of the expense associated with horseback riding, And also the fact that we just know nothing about horses so it feels very foreign to us but we're going to let her try it there are going to be limits and there are going to be boundaries maybe she'll love it and want to do it forever maybe she'll just want to do it for a couple of months and learn a few new things about horses i don't want to avoid letting her try it because of our fears as parents If she does stick with it, we will have to find a way to make it work within the parameters of our family, our lifestyle, our budget. And we can figure it out. Next question. My daughter four and son seven are constantly talking about penises and vaginas, and they think it's absolutely hilarious. However, they also like to talk about it in public jokingly. And I've had chats about how it's something we talk about at home or at the doctor's office, but not in public. I'm at a loss because they keep thinking that it's a funny subject. So my kids have absolutely done this too. Usually we do; they do keep it at home, so that makes it a little easier to manage. For some reason, for a very long time now, they have thought that vagina starts with a P, vagina and that's awkward because there's nothing more awkward than your kid shouting the names of private genital parts in public unless they're mispronouncing them strangely. So yeah, lots of penis and vagina talk. So something that you left out of your question was that you had explained to your kids the why, the why we don't say these words in public, or the why of why we minimize the use of these words in public. And sometimes that can make all the difference. I have established a rule, not a hard and fast rule, but kind of the expectation that we can say penis and vagina when we're talking about an actual penis or vagina. Like when it's necessary to discuss the body part, it's perfectly appropriate. But they're not words that we use jokingly. We don't just walk around cracking jokes about penises and vaginas. And the reason for that is that there are a lot of people who would feel uncomfortable by that. So if you're out in public cracking jokes about penises and vaginas, you might offend someone, you might make someone else feel uncomfortable. And when we're out in public sharing space with others, we do have to be conscientious about their feelings too. So while we support the use of these words when appropriate, we also support that they're not necessarily jokes, not anything that we really laugh about. And sometimes when we use them in public, it does make other people uncomfortable. Now the comfort levels of every family is different. I was in the city this weekend with my kids and there was a guy walking down the sidewalk next to us with AirPods in and he was just dropping all sorts of F-bombs and it made me feel uncomfortable. My kids were right there listening. It's not the way that we talk at home. It's not the way I prefer for other people to talk in front of my kids. I don't necessarily think that it's socially appropriate to do in front of other people's kids, especially when you're out in public next to strangers' kids. But it happens. Many times, a simple explanation of our why will go a long way. A few months ago, we transitioned my daughter to a booster seat now that she's six and a half, just the regular booster seat with no back on it. And she's had somewhat of a hard time like moving around her upper body, keeping the shoulder strap positioned, being a little too wiggly to be safe. And I got really frustrated about it over and over again until one day I was super frustrated and I pulled the car over on the side of the road And I was fully prepared to rage. And I stepped out of the car and I took a deep breath and I changed my plan. No raging. Raging generally doesn't help anyone. So instead, I took a couple more deep breaths. I opened up the rear car door and I took the seatbelt, the shoulder strap, and I held it tight so she could feel how it felt when the seatbelt locked up. And I told her, hey, can you move your body forward and backward? And she did and she could see that she was securely tight as if the seatbelt was locked. I was kind of simulating that. And I said, this is what happens when you get into a car accident. If we get into a car accident, your seatbelt is gonna lock and your body is not gonna be able to move. You will be safe. Now, lay down to the side. So she laid down where her upper body was kind of leaning out of the shoulder seat. And I shook her body a little bit so she would see what would happen if there was an accident. And there was impact. And she could see that her whole body flailed when she was laying sideways outside of the shoulder belt. And then I said, this is what's going to happen to your body if we're in a car accident and you're not seated safely. The shoulder strap can't keep you safe unless you're sitting upright with your shoulders back. And she looked at me. she was like, oh, okay. And we've never had a problem since. She quite literally didn't understand how the shoulder strap worked, and I had never taken the time to explain it to her. And as a result, the numerous times that I asked her to sit up and keep her shoulders back, she didn't really understand the importance of it. And it just wasn't getting through to her. But once I simulated what actually would happen in a car accident and how the seatbelt would tighten up and how that would impact her based on the way that she was sitting, she totally got it. It clicked. It clicked no pun intended, and we haven't had the issue since. And my only regret is that I didn't do that a year or two earlier. (laughs) It's such a simple lesson, and it has really gone a long way. And it's something that I'm going to be reminding myself of as we have battles like this. Do they know the why? Do they know the impact? And sometimes taking a moment to go a step further and explain that can make a big difference. All right, question. Hi, Danae. My question is about reining in my kids at dinner time. My daughter, 9, and son, 5, get super goofy at dinner time. We sit at the table as a family, and it often ends with my husband or I finally getting angry and telling them we've had enough, and now they have to be silent, which often works. But I don't want my kids to be silent at the dinner table. I just want to be able to have nice conversations about the day. I'm highly sensitive, and the constant noise is too much for me at times because I'm trying to talk, not being heard, and then I get close to ragey. We've even had to remove one of them and have them eat in a totally separate room just to have a nice dinner, which of course is no longer a nice dinner because one child isn't with us. I just don't know how to handle this. I'm certainly not into the child should be seen and not heard, but some civility would be nice. Dinner has become my most anxious part of the day and I just want it to be nice. Oh, I hear this question so much. I would say I more often hear this question from men or some variety of it. There seems to be kind of this... Prevailing wish for men to have a nice family dinner. And that means the kids all sit at the table, smiling, napkins in hand, taking turns discussing the events of the day, chewing with their mouths closed. Usually in these idealizations, there is no one blowing bubbles in their water or milk. There is no one spilling anything. There's no one talking over anyone. No one getting up from the table three times to go to the bathroom. No one eating for three minutes and then deciding that they're done. And now it's not just men. I'm not going to blame it all on men, but that's where I see this expectation more often. I think in general, there are many of us who have idealized expectations of what mealtimes are going to be like with kids. It's the end of the day. We're all super tired, exhausted, probably overdone. And I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to make these times quote-unquote perfect, which generally means all of the things that I just said. But often, they're going to be imperfect. They're going to be messy, physically messy, emotionally messy. If you find that that's the case for your family time and time again, you may be putting a little too much pressure on this. You mentioned that you're highly sensitive. And if that's the case, you probably have a lot of sensitivity building throughout the day especially if it's auditory sensitivity if you're sensitive to noises if you are surrounded by noise throughout the day it probably weighs heavily on you so this kind of end of the day cumulative effect of your overwhelm has built up so while you say you don't have a the child should be seen and not heard mentality you may actually need that mentality in order to have a nice dinner You may actually need your children to be quiet in order for you to enjoy the dinner, and that might not be possible. We have to make sure that our expectations are actually achievable. If you spend all day feeling anxious about how dinner time is going to go, maybe you should try breakfast instead, or maybe just focus on having nice dinners on the weekends or a nice breakfast together on the weekends. Removing some of that pressure, which might have to do with the frequency of the event, might help everyone to feel a little bit better about it. So see if there's a way that you could meet them in the middle. Understand that they're going to be noisy and they're going to be wiggly and they're going to be imperfect because they're humans and see if you can make some changes in your expectations or the timing or the frequency to find some rhythms that work better for your family. Right now, my son is not getting home from school until five every night. He attends a specialized school for kids with language-based learning differences. And I know for a fact that he busts his butt all day at school. And when he gets home, he needs a break. He has to work two, three, maybe four times harder than most kids. So since we've moved to this schedule where he doesn't get home until five, he eats his dinner in front of the TV. And that's never something that I ever would have said I was going to do before I was a parent. But I'm leaning into what's best for my family right now. And what's best, especially for my son, is having a full hour to decompress and watch a couple shows when he gets home from school. He spent an entire long school day, an extra long school day in an environment that is very language rich and language demanding. And language doesn't come easy for him. So I'm not making conversational and language demands of him right when he walks in the door. So family dinners for us right now are happening on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. And every morning we have breakfast together with our daughter because she gets on the bus later to go to her school. So while in this season of life we're not all sitting down the four of us every single day for dinner together, that's okay. We're doing what we need to do to support ourselves and to support the well-being of our whole family. All right, I have a lot of rapid-fire questions coming up that I'm going to respond to after we take a quick break from our sponsors. The first sponsor for today is KiwiCo. I know how difficult it is to find a holiday gift that keeps kids excited after the day that they open it but KiwiCo knows a thing or two about delivering fun for all ages. And they're here to help you give awesome. With a KiwiCo subscription, you're getting so much more than a toy. You're gonna get a season of discovery and experiences delivered straight to your door. Each box is kid approved with a crew of kid testers to ensure that they're age appropriate and seriously fun. If I had to look back over this year and pick the best project that we've done, it's definitely gonna be the air hockey table. We actually built a functioning air hockey table in our dining room. That was fun not only in the building and constructing part, but also in the playing the game part too. So go above and beyond a trendy toy with a subscription that keeps on giving. Give awesome this holiday season with KiwiCo. Get your first month of any crate line free at kiwico.com forward simple. That's your first month free at kiwico.com simple. Our second sponsor for today is Organifi. Organifi is a new sponsor on the podcast, but one that I wish I had found sooner. It's a line of organic superfood blends that offer plant-based nutrition with high quality ingredients. Each Organifi blend is science-backed to craft the most effective doses with ingredients that are organic and free of fillers, while still containing less than three grams of sugar per serving. I love the Organifi Gold, which is intended to be a nighttime drink. It's been a great way to finish my days. Each Organifi blend is easy to use by simply mixing it with water or your favorite beverage on the go. They don't compromise quality for taste. In fact, Organifi takes pride in offering the best tasting superfood products at a price that works out to less than $3 a day. You can experience Organifi's high quality superfoods without breaking the bank. Head over to Organifi.com forward slash simple and use the code simple for 20% off your first order. That's Organifi.com forward slash simple and use the code simple for 20% off your first order. The final sponsor for today is Preptish. I have been using Preptish for years and I'm still talking about it all the time. I was actually just sharing it with another mom this morning who was saying that she was currently doing a meal planning delivery service that didn't seem to quite be working out. I told her about Preptish and why it's different. It's different because you're not actually getting food delivered to you. You're ordering your groceries or going to the store and getting your groceries the same way that you always have. But now you have a meal plan. You have some structure in how to prepare the food so that you save time, you save energy, and you save your mental load. I can't even imagine going back to meal planning the way that I used to do, which was basically not at all and essentially winging it. It feels so much better now that I have PrepDish in my life. If you haven't tried PrepDish, I highly recommend it. I cook gluten-free at home, and I find that the menus are really easy to substitute and mostly generally gluten-free to start with. The super fast menu is always my favorite. Go to preptishcom forward slash families to get two weeks free. That's preptishcom forward slash families. Thanks for supporting our sponsors. They help to keep this show in business. Back to today's episode. All right, I have a series now of Simple questions that I'm gonna try to get through pretty quickly, I'm not gonna dive too deeply on these. All right, the first one, how to best help kids misbehavior when they seek approval from others? Well, if the others that they're seeking approval from are peers, then you might find that peer correction is actually the most effective thing. You think about something simple like nose picking, a parent can tell a kid to stop picking their nose a hundred times, but when the kid next to them at school asks them, they listen. Sometimes we want to correct our kids so that they don't have to experience peer correction, which is often more associated with humiliation, but peer correction is part of growing and learning and the socialization process to some extent. So I don't think we should shy away from peer correction altogether, but instead check ourselves and know that we're not going to be able to prevent all of our kids' struggles. Next question. How did you find Spanish classes for the kids while you were in Mexico? So. They were amazing. Um, my kids are not fluent, not even close to being conversational. In fact, I think the the phrase that they practiced the most was, yo quiero crepas de nutelas. So they learned how to order Nutella crepes in Mexico, which doesn't seem to make a lot of sense, but that's how they decided they wanted to use their Spanish most often. So the classes were really basic and fun. They were doing two hours of more table work in the mornings and then two hours where they would go out to a museum or they'd make a pinata. Other more experiential stuff like make chocolate at a chocolate factory. But overall, low pressure, fun. And they did have opportunities to practice some little bits of Spanish, which is really all they know at this point, by um, shopping at the markets and ordering at restaurants. Ironically, eating a lot of Nutella grapes. I have studied Spanish in a couple of different countries for a period of a few months at a time before. And the first time that I did it, I went to Peru and I booked everything in advance. I booked the homestay. I booked the lessons, planned it for three months. I was taking a sabbatical from my social work job when I was 25. I knew within the first week that I had made a mistake. I didn't really love the school that I was at. I didn't love the homestay that I was at. I wanted to pivot. So I kind of just started walking around and found a school that was a better fit for my needs and found a hostel that I wanted to stay in instead of the homestay. So following that experience, that kind of just wander around and find something that's a good fit, that's what I have done subsequently. So my husband and I spent two months in Costa Rica studying Spanish um, before we had kids, and we did the same thing. We just got there Walked around, looked at the schools, talked to the people working there, and signed up when we got there. Um, so that's what we did this summer in Mexico. I kind of got the name of a few different language schools locally, and I knew I wanted to choose the one that just had the most kids at it. And I didn't know what that was going to be on any given week when we got there. And they didn't really know either. So it was hard to plan that in advance. So when we arrived, we arrived on a Sunday, and then on Monday, we started walking around, checking out the different schools, asking how many kids were attending. Because most of the Spanish language schools are really intended for adults, but they also have kids' classes if there are enough kids there. So we chose the school that had the most number of kids, and that was really fun for my kids to have other kids around. So we're planning to go back again next summer. We're going to stay at the same Airbnb and go back to the same school. Anyone who wants to check out the school i would be happy to send you the name of it. It's not a Spanish language school, especially for kids, but if there are enough kids, then it can be pretty fun. Next question, my kids keep leaving their laundry all over the place, help. So I'm hoping you heard my episode on, on making mornings more manageable, because I talked a little bit about this. For us, the management of the laundry has been the most simple when we just have one hamper that is centrally placed between our bedrooms. That way, no one has a hamper in their bedroom per se, but it's outside in the hallway. That means there are only two places that clothing really needs to be, either in the drawers or in the hamper. I think when we have a lot of hampers, the hampers tend to get overwhelming. The laundry tends to accumulate quickly because it's kind of dispersed equally amongst all the hampers. So we've also done a lot of reminding and cheering our kids on when they do remember. And they don't always remember. And my son does always remember because that's who he is. He's extraordinarily tidy and organized. As I've said before, (laughs) it's funny, actually, raising this child has made me understand how truly brain-based our tidiness levels are, because I am quite a tornado, as is my daughter, and both my husband and son are very naturally tidy, and none of his tidiness did he learn from me, nor really was ever taught to him. It was something that he naturally adapted to, and my daughter, on the other hand, has struggled just like I struggled most of my life with putting things back where they belong. So it's going to be part of her journey. So there's some patience involved in that and some encouragement too. All right, how do you transition to letting kids choose some meals and foods? An easy way to do this for us has been really only keeping foods in our house that we are happy to have our kids eat. I think if we keep a bunch of junk foods that we don't want our kids begging for and asking for, then it makes it easy to set some limits and boundaries. So keeping only the foods in the house that we really want our kids to eat has allowed us to let them make choices for themselves. Now, something that recently I have started doing, which has been working exceptionally well when it comes to sweets and desserts, is that when I'm ordering the groceries, which is usually happening on Saturday mornings, as we speak, each person in the family chooses a box of ice cream or popsicles or ice pops, whatever they are. They're usually a box of four to six. And that's their box. Nobody's allowed to touch your box. You can eat it at whatever pace suits you. You want to eat the whole box in one day, you do you. You want to eat one a week and save your box for a month, that's okay too. You want to trade one with somebody else and they want to trade with you, great. You are in charge of rationing out your box of goodies. And oh my gosh, this has worked way better than I could have ever anticipated. It used to be when we had something like this, it would be everyone fighting for the last one, wheeling and dealing and bargaining and negotiating and begging and too much mental bandwidth for me. As parents, we have to spend so much time setting limits. Do we really need one additional thing in our life to set limits over like popsicles? No, we don't. So did my son eat an entire box of ice cream sandwiches yesterday? Yes, he did. Am I okay with that? Yes, I am. Will he have any to eat the rest of the week? No, he won't. Will he make the same mistake again? Maybe? I guess we'll find out. Would this work if I bought ice cream sandwiches at Costco? No, probably not. (laughs) I think it only really works because most of the ice cream and popsicles that we buy come in boxes of sometimes even three or four, but at the most six. Aside from the single incident where we had someone eat a box of ice cream sandwiches in a whole day, they actually have been rationing out really, really well. And I've been surprised at how long the treats are lasting. Now, I wouldn't expect this also to work with like, let's say Halloween candy, because the quantity is just too huge, right? If you had like 100 pieces, you're not really going to feel the need to ration them out. And also, I'm not going to feel great about you eating 100 pieces in one sitting. But if they had four or five pieces and they ate them all in one sitting and they were gone and they didn't have any the rest of the week, then, you know, they've learned a lesson about saving and how sometimes it feels good to save and to portion control. So I do think a plan like this can only work when you have very few of the items, not a large quantity, because most of us, adults included, cannot ration out a huge quantity like that. All right, would love an update on your personal style with hair and a capsule wardrobe. I have been doing Rent the Runway, the membership, since April of this year, so for about six months, and I really am enjoying it. I get a lot of sweaters at this time of the year, sweater dresses, long sleeve dresses, jumpers, rompers. I'm on a package where I get eight things per month, so I get eight pieces to kind of rotate in and wear, and then I send them back. I don't have to wash them or dry clean them or anything. It's kind of expensive, but doing the math at the end of the year is somewhat similar to probably what I'd be spending on clothing that I purchase. So it reduces my clothing waste, keeps things fresh and interesting, and prevents me from having to make a long-term commitment on any pieces of clothing. So that's really what I'm leaning into for my wardrobe right now. I did do a wardrobe from Veta, a wardrobe capsule from them last year, which is a capsule wardrobe company, and I'm still wearing a lot of those pieces as well. I loved it so much the winter capsule, that is. It's a lot of black and darker colors. And for hair, I am really loving my podcast sponsor, LUS Brands, L-U-S Brands. I had a lot of people messaging me asking about what I'm doing differently with my hair, and that's it. You can try it out with the promo code simple, LUSBrands.com, if you want to try it out. So it's it's a company especially designed for curly and wavy hair, and I have wavy hair that's That doesn't particularly work in my favor, but I'm loving it. All right, how's the school reality going for your kids? This year is actually really great. Both of my kids are having a really wonderful start to the school year. I am very grateful for that. It's not something that we take for granted. But overall, they're both really happy and very well supported at school. And at home, we can see the impact of that. All right, final question for today. How do you know when a child is ready to start kindergarten? I think that I may have answered this question on the podcast before. Um, When I moved to New York from Texas five years ago, I was outraged to find out that four-year-olds can start kindergarten in New York and Connecticut. In fact, you can be four until the holiday season and turn five in December and January in New York and Connecticut and still be in kindergarten. So for half the year, you can be four years old in kindergarten. How many times can I say that? It's just because I'm still in shock that this happens and it happens so frequently. So yeah, a lot of kindergarten readiness looks at, you know, do you know your letters? Do you know your numbers? That sort of thing. More and more so, I think kindergarten readiness is looking at social and emotional development, which is wonderful. But I think if you have a little one who is very young and you're looking to start them into kindergarten, something that you need to consider is not just how they're going to be doing in kindergarten, but also how they're gonna do in middle school. Around the ages of, well, it's really between 10 and 12, kids start to experience a shift in their brain development from concrete to abstract thinking. It's a slow and steady change. However, it's a profound one. Here's an example of this. So 20 years ago almost, Oh my gosh, was it that long ago? I was in grad school and I was tutoring a little girl. She was attending a very demanding private school in the D.C. area and she was 10 and she was in sixth grade. So she was a very young sixth grader, very young, like a year younger than her peers. And she was struggling with language arts. I remember spending one evening with her, helping her dissect a Langston Hughes poem, which was hard for me. And it had a real impact on her self-esteem. She felt like she was dumb. She felt like she couldn't do it. When the reality was she was really smart. Her brain just wasn't ready for this sort of work yet. Her brain hadn't matured enough to be able to shift to do this sort of analytical thinking yet. It was still a work in progress. So I don't know where she is today, but I'm sure that she has been very successful as she was very bright. But I do think that when you have kids in middle school, you know that started school really young and they seem like they were ready, and then they kind of hit this wall, that this can be a big part of it. So think about the age that you start them now. They're always going to be younger. If they're a full year younger, consider that. And although it may not seem to be a huge barrier right now, you might see it pop up in the future. Now, will it be more than they can handle? No, probably not. May it possibly have an impact on their self-esteem like it did for this little girl? It's possible. Will it make or break them? Probably not. Will they be okay either way? Probably. Is there a perfect answer? No, definitely not. For the most part though, I think many people are happy to give their kids a little bit of extra time before they start school. A little bit more time to play, a little more time to relax. A little more time to just be kids before they get immersed into the world of academics thanks so much for tuning in I hope you have enjoyed this episode and I will talk with you soon I'm so glad you're here